0: After marking hymn number 58, as Brother Harold has asked that we do, I might ask that we continue our consideration and study of our present series on premillennialism. Indeed, as we've been blessed today by the greatness of God to allow us to come together like this, we may in fact already appreciate the blessing that's been ours to lift up His name in song, to approach Him in prayer, to understand the fellowship we've enjoyed as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, But, of course, also we'd be remiss not to focus our efforts for a while on the wonderful Word of God, to be challenged and uplifted by it, to be set forth on the course that leads to everlasting life. And so this morning I would ask that we continue our series of studies that we have been involved with by way of recollection and remembrance. To this point, as we've already come through four lessons, we have come to see then the wonderful nature Of Psalm 29 2. Given to the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. With that being your intent and mine this morning, I might ask that premillennialism touches that subject in a variety of ways. So far in our study of this series, we have looked at the matter of authority and learned interestingly from Mark 11 that authority in matters religious rests either with men or from heaven. And with regard to this study, we certainly desire to use God's authority from heaven and thus use the Bible as our text and as our guide. In the second lesson, we painted a picture of what men so often say, namely that which is called premillennialism. We found in so many ways that it's a rather eloquent presentation, that there are many things that grasp and grab the attention of the human family. However... We also learned that there's virtually none of it that's true. And so in our third lesson, as we began to focus the spotlight on one particular matter, we asked, why did Jesus come to this earth the first time? We found it was not to establish a physical kingdom. It was, at all points considered, related to the spiritual matters of the human family to make a way that we could be saved from the terrible consequences of our sins. Finally, in the lesson last Lord's Day morning, we ask another question. Was it a surprise to Christ and to God that the Jews rejected him? We found it was not a surprise. It had been foretold centuries before on many occasions in the Old Testament. And hence it was far from a shock, far from any kind of surprise. So that's two particular planks of the premillennialism set up that are completely without foundation in the Word of God. Today we'll come to yet the consideration of another matter in the premillennialism plank. What about those kingdom prophecies of the Old Testament? What can in fact be said about them? What should be appreciated and what should be understood? With regard to those kingdom prophecies, it certainly would be interesting to make these comments. You might notice as we look at them interestingly in this way, I present a few of the highlights by way of remembrance you may wish to take a careful note and look at them because we notice in premillennialism this is what we are told. First of all, in regard to those kingdom prophecies, we are told that the Old Testament prophecies of the coming kingdom had to do with a physical kingdom. In fact, it is asserted that that is the complete and entirety of those prophecies. We notice that we are told that that is the purpose for which Christ came. Namely, that he was intending to fulfill those prophecies and establish a physical kingdom, an earthly kingdom. However, upon the realization that the Jews were rejecting him, he thus moved to, if you please, a plan B. He postponed the fulfillment of those kingdom prophecies, established the church as an interim arrangement, as, if you will, a side benefit, with the full intent to come back to earth at some later time, and thus at that time fulfill those kingdom prophecies of the Old Testament that are asserted to be physical in the thrust. That's what you and I are told. I wonder how much of it is true. First of all, we've already studied the part about the rejection. That was not a surprise to Jesus. It was not a surprise to God. They knew well that that rejection was to take place. We also understood that the second one was an error. Jesus did not come to establish a physical kingdom. In fact, as we'll notice today, we're going to look at the other elements on that list. What about the Old Testament prophecies? Did they foretell a physical kingdom? We shall see. Furthermore, what about the postponement of the kingdom prophecies? Were they postponed? We shall see. Finally, thus, we shall ask, will there be a final fulfillment of these in the, what is called the millennium? We shall see. And what does that tell us about the church? Was it an interim arrangement? May I suggest, then, that we take an interesting look at some of the prophecies in the Old Testament And let's see if those other matters are in fact the case. With regard to the prophecies found in the heart of the Old Testament, I would ask your attention as we look at a few of these which follow. We'll start in the book of Daniel. In the second chapter of that noble major prophet, we find in the 44th verse of that particular chapter, the following set of ideas set forth. We notice that in the days of these kings... The God of heaven shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. We'll pause at that point. That isn't the fullness of that verse, but notice he said in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. That statement by Daniel was made in the interest of interpreting a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had. In that dream it was an image and a rather great one at that but it consisted of various metallic parts. It consisted of a head of gold, arms and a breast of silver, a midsection and, in fact, thighs of brass, lower legs of iron and feet, part of iron and part of clay. We also notice in that dream that there was a stone made without hands. It rolled or, in fact, crushed or smote the image and crushed it to powder, but the stone became a mountain that filled the whole earth. Nebuchadnezzar was greatly bothered by that dream and was in wonderment as to what it signified. As God, through Daniel, interpreted it, we find that this is the interpretation. The four sections of the image represented various kingdoms of men. The Babylonian was the head of gold. We notice the midsection, that is the section that was of silver, represented that Medo-Persian empire that was to follow. The section of brass was the Grecian Empire, headed by Alexander the Great. And finally, the Roman section, the set, the section that was of iron. It was in light of that section that represented the Roman that God, through Daniel, said in the days of these kings, the Roman kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. This kingdom would be completely distinct from those others that preceded it. This kingdom was not going to be like the Babylonian, the Grecian, the Medo-Persian, the Roman. This kingdom God would establish. That led me to make that first point. This kingdom that was prophesied in the Old Testament was to be divine in its origin. Human hands were not going to establish it. Human intent and human, in fact, devices were not going to be the basis of its origination. The God of heaven would set up a kingdom. In fact, later in Daniel 7, yet another prophecy of the same matter was presented, asserting that this kingdom would be one set forth by God. I would now ask you in your attention to look with me at some interesting things concerning the church. What might be said about the church of which you and I are so blessed to be a part? Was it divine in its origin? The Lord in Matthew sixteen eighteen said, I will build my kingdom and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Whose kingdom? Jesus said it belonged to him. And notice he said, I will build it. Thus the whole origination of this kingdom, the marvelous church, also is absolutely divine. But you'll notice furthermore, we could notice in Acts 20:28, 20, to those elders of the church of Ephesus, wasn't it Paul who thus reminded them, take heed to yourselves and to the church over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Again, what about the origin of that body? Paul said Christ, with his blood, purchased it. Human hands never touched it. In terms of its design, in terms of its basic structure, God has orchestrated all of it. Later, are we not able to see in Ephesians 2, verses 20 to 22, the closing verses of that chapter, a description is made about Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone and the apostles and prophets being those who are able to work nobly in that marvelous body of the Son of God. Thus, we might interestingly assert that this matter being divine in origin as it was prophesied in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in the church of our Lord. But notice what else might be said about those prophecies. It was prophesied long, long before in the Old Testament that that kingdom would be a monarchy in its government. A monarchy, not a democracy, not a republic, not an oligarchy. It was to be a monarchy. And so it was, as we look at the prophecy wherein that is found. In Daniel 7, verses 14 and 27, we find again Daniel... This particular occasion, he was in fact that one responding to a vision that God had made available to him. Daniel saw beasts rise out of the sea. As the interpretation for what those beasts represented was made to him, we learn in verse 14, God told Daniel that in fact, the Son of Man shall pass through the clouds into the ancient of days and then he shall be given glory and dominion and a kingdom. What is that? When the Son of Man passes through the clouds, He shall be given a kingdom. You and I might thus ponder who is the one discussed as the Son of Man, the Son of God, if you please, and who is the ancient of days to which He is going, and what is the kingdom to which it refers? We only need look at Acts chapters 1 and 2 and find when Jesus ascended from this earthly climb, passing in fact through the clouds back to the glory of His Father, In the very next chapter, not many verses later, he was given a kingdom and he reigns at the very right hand of God over the spiritual kingdom you and I know of as the church. This prophecy thus found in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament helps us to see the monarchy that is thus set forth. That helps us see still today, doesn't it, that the church as described in the Bible does not have representatives, if you please, that determine its laws. Isn't it remarkable that there are those upon our earth today who sit in synods, conventions, and conferences and determine what doctrine their particular religious body will teach and that which their body will hold true to? Might I ask, where in the world does one find anything in the Bible that describes God having given to any man the opportunity to legislate for His kingdom. It is wholly absent and missing. Notice, it is a monarchy. And before Jesus ever left the glory of this earth to the greater glory of heaven, He had vouchsafed to those apostles the fact that you will be guided into all truth, John 16, 13. And as they were thus inspired of God and the Holy Spirit to write that which they did and to preach so nobly as they did... They were guided into those truths. And as such, that kingdom wasn't left into the feeble, frail hands of humanity. Furthermore, we can see the nature of the promises concerning David. It was asserted that the one reigning on this kingdom would be of the seed of David. We find, in fact, in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Jeremiah, in the book of Psalms as well, references to that fact. No wonder when we come to some fulfillments... That you see near the bottom of that slide, in Romans one verse three, we find that Jesus was of the seed of David, fulfilling all of those prophecies concerning the seed of David reigning in terms of the monarchy. How pointedly the point is made in Colossians one eighteen, speaking of Christ, it says He is the head of the body, the church. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. The headship of Christ cannot be disputed or questioned. And so it is that one notes also in Matthew 28:18 that Jesus so directly said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So far, these two prophecies of the Old Testament that we have seen have not said anything that made us think that it was to be a physical earthly kingdom. It's divine in origin and it is a monarchy in its government. Notice, furthermore, it was to be indestructible in its nature. We had hinted at that already, hadn't we, from Daniel 2, verse 44. On that occasion, again, Daniel said, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And as the verse closes, he goes on to say, It shall stand forever. We might pause and ask, What about the kingdoms of humanity? The ancient Babylonians or the Egyptians? the Grecians, the Medo-Persians, the Romans, the Middle Ages eras of the Ottomans and the Turks and others. Might I suggest that all of those kingdoms have now been relegated to the dustbins of history. Notice God said, This kingdom which I will establish shall stand forever. It shall never be destroyed. Notice that we are now in the position of enjoying a marvelous kingdom that seems to rise far higher than any physical kingdom that ever has been known. For this kingdom to which the prophets referred was to be perpetual. It was to be indestructible. Notice in the New Testament some statements that seem to verify that as it relates to the church, not to any millennial kingdom on earth. Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it with regard to the prophecies concerning the church he was to establish, not many days thereafter from when that statement was made, he said that the gates of hell shall not even prevail against it. Later in the New Testament, we notice in Ephesians 3.21, on that occasion, the noble apostle thus said, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Can we not see the indestructible character in the description of that verse? In Hebrews 12:28? we have received a kingdom which cannot be moved. How thankful we should be for the church and its indestructible nature. These things so far have led us to believe that the Old Testament wasn't referring to a physical kingdom. There's more that we should say. Can we not in the fourth place make note of the fact that this kingdom was to be universal in its scope? How many times in the Old Testament do we read passages such as Isaiah 2 verse 2, Micah 4 verses 1, 2, and 3, in which there the language explicitly says all nations shall flow unto it. Those two sections of prophecy had to do with the establishment and the reality of that future kingdom from that day. And in both instances, the prophet said, not a few selected peoples, but all nations would flow into it. Meaning that the opportunity would be there for all. As we appreciate the great fulfillment of that again in the reality of the church, isn't it interesting that we find one other prophecy that is quoted verbatim in the New Testament? It's found in the closing chapter of the book of Amos. Amos. In Amos 9, beginning in verse 11, we have a passage of prophecy that is marvelous in its thrust. That passage is quoted verbatim in Acts 15. And there it is applied directly to the church in its reality, noting again that all are welcomed into the body of Christ. God hasn't just selected those that are rich or those that are poor. He hasn't just selected those that, say, are of Jewish extraction. He makes the opportunity available to each and every one of you and me. And thus in that church we notice in Romans 10 verse 12, as well as in Colossians 3 verse 11, the statements are made that the church in its embodiment, in its reality, welcomes and invites not only those that would be a Jew, but those that would be Gentile alike. And that covers everybody. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. We read in Romans 10 verse 12, Those matters have challenged us to see that through four points already this morning in regard to the kingdom prophecies, they did not in fact find their embodiment in a physical earthly kingdom. Rather, the fifth one will in fact paint a rather dramatic picture in addition to these. For notice a few of the specifics and the details of the establishment of this kingdom. It is at this point that so many in the world make a dramatic mistake And they overlook these. For we might now ask this question. Did the Old Testament specify where and when the kingdom would be established? For if it did, that should eliminate any organization or kingdom that did not find its establishment when and where the Old Testament had said. Now remember with me that those who are of premillennial persuasion tell us the kingdom is yet to be established at some point in the millennium. If the Old Testament foretold and prophesied differently, that should settle this matter completely. As we return to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we find in clear language the Old Testament had said the kingdom would be established in Jerusalem, without doubt. Micah, in fact, affirmed the same thing the closing verses of Micah 3 and the opening verses of Micah 4. Here thus we find an interesting conclusion. Any religious organization that cannot trace its origin to the city of Jerusalem cannot possibly be the kingdom of which the Old Testament prophesied. Notice furthermore though that something else can be said. The Old Testament also affirmed that the kingdom would be established in the days of the first century. I need to restate that, I, I think. The Old Testament had prophesied that the kingdom would be established in the days of the first century A.D. You and I now live far, far after that. We, of course, live now in the 21st century. Notice, if that be the case, the kingdom must have been around for 20 centuries or so now and that also means it cannot possibly be the case that the kingdom is yet to happen in the millennium let's look at those passages in which it was said when it would be established interestingly enough we find so powerfully and wonderfully that again daniel 2 verse 44 had said in the days of these kings what kings the roman kings daniel 2:44 god would establish a kingdom The Roman Empire fell, we will recall, in 476 A.D. Thus, long ago now, the Roman kingdom is no more with us. And yet, it was supposed to be during the days of those kings when this kingdom of God was to be established. Luke 3, verse 1 names several Roman procurators and Roman leaders. Furthermore, if time permitted us this morning, we could look at the book of Daniel. In the ninth chapter of that book, a text that we shall consider in some detail later in this series, we will notice a prophecy of 70 weeks, and in the unfolding of that 70 weeks, the kingdom was to find its establishment, as we shall find in that study, that 70 weeks, that sixty-ninth week has long now since passed. I wonder to what kingdom these matters refer. Might I ask you to notice one more strong line of evidence? The Bible's description of that great kingdom is described in future tense verbs through a great deal of the Bible. Notice what Jesus said, for instance, in Matthew 4.17. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Thus it wasn't yet in existence, but it was close apparently. John the Baptist had asserted the same in Matthew 3, verse 2. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus in Matthew 16 had said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But then to Peter he said, I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Thus the kingdom and the church there are equated one to the other. Can you not see Jesus in those passages said He would build it. It was not yet in existence then. Later, however, we find there's a dramatic change. All those verses from Acts chapter 2 onward describe the kingdom as present tense. It was then in existence. What was spoken of in future tense verbs prior to Acts chapter 2 is spoken of in present tense verbs after Acts the second chapter. Apparently, the kingdom came into existence then. And in added evidence to those thoughts. Notice with me the following. In Colossians 1 verse 13, the lesson text for our study this morning, we notice that Paul to the Colossian brethren said, speaking of Christ, who has in fact delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom. Translated us into the kingdom. Thus the Colossians as well as Paul were members of the kingdom. That means the kingdom was in existence. Isn't that a lovely thought? Isn't that also a rather impressive one? It flies completely in the face of the premillennial claim that the kingdom is yet to be sometime in the future. The Colossians were part of it. Not only that, John was part of it. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, We notice there that John said that he, as well as those to whom he was writing, were members of the kingdom. Question. If the kingdom, as we're told in premillennialism, is not yet in existence and is still at some distant point in the future, how could the Colossians have been a part of the kingdom? How could John have been a part of the kingdom? Clearly, there's something very wrong with premillennialism. My friend, the kingdom has been around now since Acts chapter 2. It has been here in glory, it has been here in greatness, and it is the church of which you and I are so blessed to be a part. To consider then the nature of that kingdom, I would ask you to notice one more rather interesting passage. In the opening verse to Mark chapter 9, Jesus made this statement. In the hearing of some of those to whom he was speaking that day, he said that the kingdom of God shall come with power during the lifetime of some of those who were standing here. To put it in the words in which Jesus phrased it, he said, there shall be some standing here which shall not taste of death until they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Meaning? That means, my friend, if the kingdom has not yet come, there must be some very old people living somewhere on this earth some folks who are now over 2,000 years old. For Jesus said there would be some that day who would not die until they had seen the kingdom come. Now you and I know very well from our study today that the kingdom has come. It's the church. And marvelously, some of those were able to see and experience it not many days after Jesus made that statement in Mark the ninth chapter. To perhaps move to one final consideration in our lesson this morning. We have thus far attempted to look at the premillennial claims in the light of the Old Testament prophecies. And we have found that the prophecies did not prophesy what premillennialism claims they did. To perhaps now look at it from a different perspective, consider with me this, if you would. The premillennialists also claim that the prophecies of the Old Testament in regard to the kingdom, were postponed. That is to say, when the Jews rejected Christ, he postponed the fulfillment of these until the later millennium in which he will reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. You and I have already asserted that cannot be right. There are some other lines of evidence, though, that converge to the same point. I would ask you to briefly consider with me these six. First of all, in that list... The kingdom was never asserted to be physical. Never. In God's statements to David in Second Samuel 7, in the prophecies that we have considered earlier today, we have learned dramatically that that kingdom was to be universal in scope. It was to be indestructible in nature. It was to last forever. Furthermore, we have seen in the concourse of that how that kingdom Kingdom was not then to be based on a physical issue. As you look at the passages such as John 18 36, shortly before Jesus was crucified, he said, My kingdom is not of this world. How much plainer and clearer could the Lord have been? On that occasion, when he said, My servants would fight if my kingdom were of this world, he went on to say, Clearly, my kingdom is not of this world. Thus the kingdom to which one should have been looking was never physical to start with. Earlier in the book of John, in John 6 verse 15, after the Lord had done that mighty miracle of feeding the 5,000 with so little, there were some who were so excited about Him that they were prepared to make Him a king. Did Jesus accept the kingship then? He didn't. He didn't. He refused it, and in fact, he went the other way because he knew they were going to strive to do that, and that was not the purpose for his coming. The kingdom, you see, was not physical. It was not prophesied to be. Secondly, you might note with me, as we've already learned, the kingdom prophecies were not postponed because we've already seen they were fulfilled in the first century. The Colossians and John and others were a part of the kingdom. The Thessalonians were said to be in it as well in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12. We can't argue the fact that the kingdom had to be in existence in the first century and thus it wasn't postponed. In the third place, notice this interesting consideration. We find in Luke 22, on that occasion when the Lord in fact instituted the Lord's Supper, He very clearly said, I will not henceforth drink of this fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Interesting, isn't it? For we find in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, the Corinthians were partaking of the Lord's Supper. Thus they must have been in the kingdom, for Jesus said the next opportunity to take of it would be in the kingdom. That has to mean the Corinthians were members of the kingdom and it had been established by the time Paul wrote the Corinthian letters. The evidence is overwhelming, isn't it? The kingdom was in existence. Notice yet another matter that might well be asserted. This one, we might suggest, has disastrous consequences. Consider this line of reasoning with me. Under the days of the Old Testament in Zechariah 6 verse 12, it was explicitly affirmed that the one who would reign as king would simultaneously reign as priest in the kingdom. The priest and the king were to reign the same person reigning as both simultaneously. When you and I turn the page into the New Testament, we find that Jesus is asserted to be our high priest without doubt, in Hebrews three verse one, as well as Hebrews eight verse one. Thus, what's the point? If he's now reigning as high priest, Zechariah had said he would at the same time reign as king. One can't serve as king unless there is a kingdom over which he's reigning. That must mean the kingdom is now in existence and Christ is reigning as its high priest as well as as its king. Again, the evidence is overwhelming, isn't it? The premillennial viewpoint is so wrong in asserting that the kingdom prophecies were postponed. In the fifth place, you might notice the eternal purpose of God is set forth for us in the words of Ephesians 3, verses 10 and 11. Do you remember one of the things that we mentioned in passing earlier today? That we are told from the premillennial viewpoint that He established the church as an interim arrangement, as a plan B, if you please. That isn't what Paul affirmed. Listen to how... Lovely this language is. To the intent that now and to the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul, how long has the purpose been in place? Eternally. The church, you see, is not a fly-by-night arrangement. It was carefully conceived in the mind of God from eternity's past. And it came to fruition exactly when and where the Lord had said it would. The church is not a plan B arrangement. It's not an interim scheme. Jesus didn't just establish to save face in the light of the Jews' rejection of Him. That wasn't it at all. He knew they were going to reject Him and it was all along the plan to give man an opportunity to be saved from his sins. And the church is a thoroughfare by which that can happen. Sixthly and finally, What about the gospel plan of salvation? That also is another line of consideration that points us to the beauty of the fact that the kingdom prophecies were not postponed. Jesus had said, hadn't He, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Mark Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. When you consider that plan of salvation, You'll notice, though, that that directly links to this. The church, we've already learned, is the kingdom. Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. So if it is the case that one is added to the church in obeying the gospel, and it is, Acts 2.47, that means one's added to the kingdom. And hence, when you and I proclaim the gospel plan of salvation, we are proclaiming the entrance requirements to the kingdom. And since Jesus said to proclaim that gospel plan of salvation, that must mean the kingdom is now in existence. Otherwise, there will be no need to preach it. People wouldn't be able to enter it because it doesn't exist. The fact that we are to preach that message of the gospel means the kingdom is now in existence and folks need to be part of it and members in it if they're going to be saved. Our study of the kingdom prophecies this morning have taken us to many passages of Scripture both Old and New Testament alike. And in our study of them, I hope we could summarize it in words like this. Premillennialism claims that those kingdom prophecies of the Old Testament had a physical thrust and that they will be fulfilled in the millennium, a thousand years at some future time. We've learned all of that is nonsense from the perspective of the Bible. The kingdom prophecies were spiritual in their thrust and they were fulfilled when the Old Testament said they would be and their fulfillment is in the church of which you and I can now be a part. Today, are you a member of that body of Christ, the kingdom spoken of in Old and New Testament? That marvelous kingdom, you see, is the thing over which Christ reigns and it is that thing which he will present to the Father in First Corinthians fifteen twenty-four on that great and final day. They will then be admitted into heaven. Where do you stand this morning? Are you a member of the kingdom? If you're not, it could well be you've never initially rendered obedience to the gospel call of invitation. Perhaps you time and again have shunned it. You've refused it. Don't do that any longer. Don't procrastinate. For today could well be the day of your salvation, in the words of Hebrews 3. This very morning, understand, if you would, that the entrance requirements of that kingdom are stated in language as follows. Believe with all your heart, Jesus, to be the Son of God, that He did establish that kingdom. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His name in the hearing of others and be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you have not done that, the baptistry waters behind me are ready. All things are prepared. If you have become a Christian, but you no longer are faithful, you've perhaps brought shame and disgrace to the church, to that very kingdom. Understand that Jesus wants you back as a noble servant by His side. To, in order to reinstate you to that position, you need to believe, first of all, that you're in error. You need to repent of those sins, and you also need to confess them so that others can in fact be aware of your change of heart and also that God can forgive you of them. Today, if we could be of help to you in either of those ways, let's all rest assured in the glory and wonder of the kingdom prophecies, for they are marvelous, but they are not pointing to a some future thousand-year reign. They have long since been fulfilled, and day by day they see their fulfillment in that lovely body we call the church. And if you need to become a part of it today or become a faithful part of it again. Let us help you in any way that we can while together we stand and while we sing.